Hello and welcome to the official Building Your Business podcast series presented by Archer Gallon Redshaw Chartered Accountants. Our firm has launched this podcast series to help simplify some of the complex challenges that occur when owning and operating a business and to assist business owners to better understand the inner workings of their organization, regardless of which industry you operate within. Every month, we'll be releasing a new episode featuring special guests from industry, as well as Archie Gallen Redshaw directors Ian Walker, Smilian Jankovic, and Valda Glynn, to provide their commentary on a variety of business management topics, alongside expertise surrounding accounting, taxation, and business strategy. Welcome to our podcast series, Building Your Business. Hello and welcome. My name is Chris Lewis, and you're listening to Building Your Business, the official podcast series presented by Archie Gallen Redshaw Chartered Accountants. Welcome to part three of our state planning mini-series, where I'm joined by special guest Ann Jansen, founder and special counsel of State First Lawyers, alongside AGR directors Ian Walker and Dada Glenn. In our previous two episodes, uh, we looked first at uh, state planning fundamentals and foundations, and then second, we looked at blended families. So uh, to, I guess, finalise the mini-series here, uh, the three of us are going to be talking about the estate planning for business structures specifically. Um, so what I'd like to do is like to hand over to, to Ian first because I know he's got a couple of questions around this and uh, he can kick, kick us off. Thanks Chris and, and welcome Anne. Uh, in the previous two podcasts that we have we've put out there for our clients and, and referral sources, we've talked about different buckets that are available. Uh, in the estate planning process and what people may or may not have, I suppose, accumulated over their life. So perhaps it might be good for those that uh, skip the blended family ones, come on board for the business structures, is, is those uh, buckets and, and what they mean. Thank you very much for having me, uh, guys. And um, uh, I was just um, thinking as uh, Chris was talking that um, this is the last in our, our series on estate planning and all the different um, interesting facets of it and then I thought well maybe it'll just keep going like one of those Netflix sort of binge type episode series we're watching The Sopranos at the moment and there's a lot of a lot of episodes but um, just to get back to um, uh, Ian's question um, um, let's just recap quickly on the five wealth buckets that you have or that you can have during your lifetime uh, because once you understand the five wealth buckets, you have a really good understanding of estate planning and what you need to do. Now, so bucket number one is the wealth bucket where you hold assets or property in your own name. So you might have a house in your own name, you might have a bank account in your own name, and so it goes. You might also hold a property with someone else, but you hold it as tenants in common. Therefore, the share that you hold in that property also falls into wealth bucket number one. Now, what's interesting to note is that they are the only assets that are governed by your will. And that comes as a big shock to, to many people that the will only covers one out of the five wealth buckets. Now let's go to wealth bucket number two. Those are assets that you hold jointly with someone else. Often it will be your partner, but it could be anybody. So I might have a joint bank account with my husband, for example, or I might hold a property as joint tenants. These assets do not form part of your will, but if you die, they go to the joint surviving owner. 
They trump the will in that regard. They do not form part of your will. Bucket number three is something that most people have these days and that is superannuation. And whether you hold it in a retail or industry fund or whether you hold it in a self-managed super fund, it does not automatically pass under your will when you die. So your death benefit will be governed by the documents that you put in place, such as a binding death benefit nomination or a reversionary pension nomination. If you don't have those in place, then the trustee of the super fund will determine who gets your super death benefit. It does not automatically pass into your will. Um, the fourth bucket is the family trust bucket. So if you have assets in a family trust, those assets do not form part of your will. If your family trust owns a property, you can't say in your will, I give that property to my son Ian, for example. Um, it won't pass under your will. And we're going to talk a lot today about superannuation and family trusts and how you pass assets in those wealth buckets um, to uh, the people you want them to go to. Now, for those who've been listening very keenly, you'll realise that I've only got to wealth bucket number four. Wealth bucket number five is insurance held out of outside of super um, in your personal name, but which requires a nominated beneficiary on your death. It will go to the nominated beneficiary. If you hold it in your name and there is no nomination, it will in fact fall into bucket number one, which is your estate bucket. Um, so now that we have these buckets um, uh, sort of lined up, we really need to understand um, how we deal with family trust assets and superannuation assets um, if you pass away. Thanks, and just quickly before we start on um, the family trust assets, because we do have a lot of clients that have businesses held in family trust that'll be quite um, interested in some of those finer points. Just on bucket number two with your joint assets, um, as an example, if a brother and sister had a bank account that had built up over the years and the brother died, the sister would get that bank account and yes. it wouldn't pass through to the estate and the children or no. the brother's family? No. Excellent. So there's a few more tips there that sometimes <laughs> can happen, um, especially with, with older generations. So I have seen that. Um, be having a bit of a yarn with respect to moving those um, assets out of joint names. But anyway, that's quite, that's quite an interesting point that I picked up just on that summary, so thank you for that. Um, with respect to family trusts, I suppose we set up quite a few here, uh, both for just investment purposes and also for business assets, um, training entities uh, for, for a lot of families, and some of them are also um, unit trusts with multiple and different families tucked in underneath it but we won't get into too much detail because like I think we've alluded to previously this may continue on um, perhaps we can all become as well known as the people of friends and get to have our own Netflix series perhaps that's what we can uh, all aspire to from doing these podcasts but um, the nitty-gritty of family trust especially those that have trustee companies we all seem to put them in place today um, a lot of, of banks require trustee companies if they're going to lend money to family trust and stuff today. So it's quite in, quite common now to see 
trustee companies rather than individual trustees um, in our client base. So with trust, we all know that um, there are appointors in there. Um, we all know that there's primary beneficiaries. We can have different classes of beneficiaries, etc. But I suppose a lot of what we talk about with our clients, um, especially for those that perceive their business to be multi-generational, um, is that trustee company and how that impacts upon estate planning as well. So, for example, mum and dad might have been running this business for quite some time now. They are a sole appointor or they could be joint appointors. Um, but the big thing is um, mum and dad could be the shareholders of that trustee or that corporate trustee. So what are the implications for estate planning that I suppose our clients have to look at when they have a structure similar to what I've just explained um, and not get caught up in assets falling into bucket number one? Well, okay. <laughs> I, I know where you're going. Um, and it's a very interesting question. Now, I think that when you see um, um, wills where uh, a couple have run a successful business in a family trust, so I call it a trading trust, maybe that's not the right word for it, but that's my sort of terminology. They've got a, a trust that's trading, the business is owned by the trust. Uh, they, they will have a trustee who is a company there. Um, uh, you know, so so going back to first principles with a family trust, the, the legal name for a family trust is actually a discretionary trust. And that name comes from the fact that it's a unique animal. It's, it's actually, um, a, the, these discretionary trusts really only came up as a, a popular thing in the 70s. And, and it came up because um, discretionary trusts as opposed to fixed trusts like unit trusts have got great asset protection um, um, components to it. And they also have great tax advantages. And it all comes from the fact that the trustee of that trust has a discretion as to who to give income to amongst the list of beneficiaries in the trust deed. And because nobody really knows whether they're going to get something or not because it's totally at the trustee's discretion, nobody in the trust has a fixed interest. And if you don't have a fixed interest, you don't have a target on your back with the trustee in bankruptcy because there's nothing to grab. You have the right to be considered by a trustee for income or capital distribution, but you have no right to call it from them. Now, that is a very important thing because if it was a fixed trust, like a unit trust, everybody has a fixed set of units, then you, that, those beneficiaries have got property and those units will fall into bucket number one, which is you own units in your own name. But a beneficiary in a discretionary trust owns nothing. Now, so we have a trustee and it might be a trustee company and it has directors and it has shareholders in there. The people who own the shares own them in bucket number one, which is it can be governed by the will. You can give the shares in your name, just like you can give the cash in your name or the house in your name, in your will to whoever you so wish. Okay, um, And we know that it's the shareholders that pick the directors and the directors make the decisions about who gets money in this trust very powerful position. Now, so you have a trustee and you have beneficiaries. 
The other point you have to know is that there's a little um, um, player on the side of most discretionary trusts called an appointor. In your deed it might be called a principal, but let's call it a appointor, the names are interchangeable. And that appointor actually can hire and fire the trustee. They can change the trustee and put in another trustee. Very powerful thing to be able to do, but that's the only power that an appointor has. They sit on the side, so let's just forget about them for a little while. So the trustee makes the decision about who gets money in the discretionary trust, and it's at their total discretion. They have to act in good faith, they have to manage the trust prudently, they do have legal obligations like that, but they do not have to give money to anybody, they just have to consider the beneficiaries properly and then make a distribution. Once you know this, you understand how family trusts groove, basically. And what I find is that people who own businesses or have um, in family trusts or um, have property in family trusts, they think that they can carve up a family trust assets like they can a pie and it's more like a bucket of water. Let's just keep that bucket analogy going. So you can't carve up water, okay? So you can't carve up the assets in a family trust. Now you can get into trust cloning and clever things like that. I can't, that's not for this podcast, that's, that's series two, episode one or whatever. So what happens is when you say, I give everything to my four children equally, in this case that Ian has raised where the family trust owns a profitable business, what are you really giving to these four children? Well, you're not giving the trust assets to them. What you are giving is the shares that you own in the corporate trustee. So each of the four, let's say you've got four children, each of the four children get a quarter of the shares, let's say. Um, and that's about it. So now what you've got are four children, maybe two of whom are really good in the business and have worked in the business, um, and two who are not interested in the business at all, all having an equal say in who runs the business. And um, you need you know, at least 51% of shareholders in order to vote the directors in, and if you can't get agreement between them, you've got a stalemate. But I think that the reason that um, people have, have said I give you know, everything you know, a quarter, a quarter, a quarter to my, my children is because they haven't understood that a family trust is like a bucket of water. It is not a pie on the table that you can carve up. And this goes back to why it's so important to get estate planning, specialist estate planning advice on your family trust to know what you should do Maybe you should just leave it to the two children who want to, to know the business and give other assets to the other two children um, and, and save yourself a lot of heartache. And just with uh, discretionary trusts, as you mentioned, the trustee has the discretion to distribute income. What is very common, though, is that income may be distributed, but actually the cash or whatever uh, that's come from, that's made those profits, actually stays in the trust. Does the balance of a beneficiary's account go to their estate or does it remain the property of the trust? It definitely, Valda, goes to the estate of the beneficiary. It's called an unpaid present entitlement or UPE and it is owing to that beneficiary and payable on demand as a debt 
owed to them. If they die, it's a debt owed to the estate. That could actually cause a lot of problems if a lot of that money has been reinvested into trust assets. But I suppose there's nothing more that you can do if the, if the beneficiary is entitled to that and they're at the state, then uh, the, there will have to be trust assets sold or other actions taken to be able to make those payments. Um, what's really important is to keep your eye on the level of the UPEs. And uh, because the other issue you've got is if you're sort of, uh, if you've got adult children and they get married and then they have a divorce, which seems to be, you know, quite common these days, then the spouse of that child that has that UPE, let's say the UPE is, I don't know, what's common in your, to see an adult child have as a, as a, oh, I've got, I've got oh. clients with up to five hundred thousand dollars owing to Okay, yeah. so let's yeah. Exactly. Is that common? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so that's scary because the adult child's got five hundred thousand dollars unpaid present entitlement. It just sits on the books. The adult child doesn't ask for it. They know it's sort of there. Maybe they don't even know it's there. And on we go. But then they get divorced, and the person who really wants to know is the spouse who's divorcing them. And, and I'll tell you now, that adult child will get a letter from the family lawyer acting for the wife or the husband, the spouse, going, do you have any unpaid present entitlements in your parents' family trust? Because if you do, half of it is now ours, um, you know, or whatever percentage they're going for. And this comes as a great shock to the parents because now the parents have got to cough up $250,000 or whatever it is um, to to the wife of their son who is their ex is the ex-wife, and and so you must uh, keep your nose clean with your accounts, and um, and get rid of those UPEs, and and that's where um, you know Ian and Valda you know can help you with the with the journal entries and the receipts and that to to get those UPEs down. And you touched on the appointal in the case of of death of the appointor, what happens to the trust in that situation for estate planning? You've hit the right nail on the head, Ian, when you zero in on the appointor, because the trustee is powerful, but the appointor is the boss of the trustee, okay? So um, if I'm an appointor, I can sack that trustee, therefore who has ultimate power? It's the appointor. So when you transfer control of a trust, because remember, it's a bucket of water, it is not a pie, so you can only transfer control of who holds the bucket. You can't divvy it out. So you transfer control of the appointor role to the person you actually want to benefit the trust because they can then appoint themselves as trustee or their company as trustee and they can then, hopefully they're a beneficiary in the list of beneficiaries in the trust, otherwise that'll be a bit of a, a red herring. Um, and, and then they can, they can transfer assets to themselves or their own family members as they go along. Um, so the, what happens on the death of the pointor is determined by the trust deed itself and it's usually buried right at the back somewhere as if it's not important you'll often find it's, it's not dealt with uh, thoroughly and there'll often be a one-liner that just says, um, it's your executor when you die. You know, and, and who is your executor? Well, you might have picked one, one child who's particularly good at finance, but not the one you wanted to get the trust. But that, that child's just got the trust, by the way, because you picked them as executor. 
So what we do is we go through the trust deed and we change the provisions to say that it is whoever you pick in a deed of appointment and then we do a deed of appointment and you pick the, the people you want to control it. Now the other part of it that often is left unsaid in these trust deeds is what happens if you become incapacitated, I mean cognitively impaired. Well, if the deed is um, silent on that point and all of a sudden you don't have an appoint or roll anymore because it'll lapse. There it is. Now you don't want that. So what we then do in the deed of appointment is we pick appointors that you want to be able to control the trust during your incapacity. If you regain capacity, like Molly Meldrum did after he fell off the ladder, he regained his capacity after a couple of months, then you're, you're reinstated. I think that's very important, that you get reinstated. So that's trust, and there's a lot to it, so um, we thank you for sharing. Bucket number four, uh, bucket number three, I beg your pardon, superannuation. Now, retail, industry funds, and of course the self-managed super fund. Uh, I suppose with the self-managed super funds, it's a bit more relevant to um, the client base on the basis that it's it's something that they control, it, um, they understand that there's you know trustees involved, members, etc. You touched on the fact that we should make sure binding death nominations, benefit nomination payments are in place or a revisionary pension if it's in an income stream. You also said though that if none of that is right or as we've seen um, in the past, the binding death nomination form is void for various reasons because of incorrect uh, information provided in it or it wasn't assist dependent, etc. The trustee decides. Now, in your experience, um, what does the trustee do? Does, do they look for assist dependents under the definitions or do they just roll over and send the money off to the estate? And if that is the case where it's becoming more and more common for the trustee to roll over and just pay it to the estate? What's the best way around that for estate planning purposes? That's a good question, Ian. Um, so you've heard that the squeaky wheel gets the oil, or is that a very old phrase that no one knows except me in here? Okay. So if you have not, like say we're talking about retail industry funds separately to S SMSF, self-managed super funds, just for the moment, because they are slightly different animals, um, although they are under the same general rules, there's, there's some differences I want to pull out on this one. Um, so the trustee of the super fund, let's call it, let's say it's Oz Super or Q Super or whoever, if you haven't got a binding nomination or a reversionary pension nomination in place, it comes up before the board and they, they consider, like they get you to fill in all these, these forms as to who wants it, they, they actually send out the notices and forms to every single person who is eligible. So it will include children, it could possibly include stepchildren, um, and it will include other interdependents and financial dependents, and everyone now um, is open to put forward a claim for that super, okay? So, and then they will look through all the paperwork and make a determination as to who should get it. Uh, they, that's their responsibility to do. They can't just flick it into the estate. They can't just give it to the spouse. If someone is not happy with the decision they make, they can appeal to, it used to be called the, um, the Super Complaints Tribunal, but now it's called AFCA. Uh, they can complain to AFCA, which is a tribunal, and it can go, be an argy-bargy in there for two years. Um, so you really don't want to leave it to trustee discretion to make that decision because I'm telling you these cases are 
there's a lot of them going on and they're all bottlenecked in the tribunal. So you don't want to go there. Um, if, however, um, you have a self-managed super fund, the, the trustee, if you haven't got a binding nomination, the trustee will make that decision. Now, that the trustee is often your, your spouse. It could, however, be um, your, one of your children because, you know, you have not got a corporate trustee of your SNSF and you've just got, you're an individual, you need two individuals in your one member fund and so you've picked the eldest child to, to be there. Uh, but this is very dangerous because what you've just done is you've left that trustee in charge of who gets your death benefit. And under most um, SMSF trustees, that surviving trustee has the power to pay it to any superannuation dependent in their discretion um, as long as they've duly considered each one. And there are many, many cases where in a blended family, the second spouse has then just paid it all to herself or himself, um, you know, and because it doesn't fall into bucket number one, it's not an estate asset and so the kids can't make a claim. Um, so there are cases on this and they're really, really antagonistic cases because the kids feel like they missed out because the second spouse has made that decision. Um, but there's also been a few cases um, where the, the daughter that has been the trustee with the father and she's just paid it all to herself and diddled her brother out of the super. You know, when the will said, I want everything shared equally. But we know that super doesn't fall within the will. So the will couldn't, it was powerless to stop the daughter as trustee of the super fund just paying it all to herself. So you it's get very around important. that by putting in a binding death benefit nomination. Yes. Where your superannuation goes to your estate. Yes, that's right. And as long as that binding nomination has been done exactly in accordance with that trustee and has been signed and witnessed properly, you're you're going to be home free. So there are plenty of cases where that hasn't. Yes, yes. Uh, I don't know why people don't want to get that legally done properly. I think it should be always done by a lawyer. Um, and, and align with the rest of your estate plan um, because it is a legal document uh, and usually there's a lot of money in super. So you really want to get that right and you really want to be careful if you're a blended family and you have an SNSF. So that's, I suppose, we've talked a lot about um, what happens upon death in some instances. We were alive for a long time as well and our assets are accruing while we're alive. Is there any strategies that we can put in place, um, and I'm, I'm more specifically talking or directing the discussion towards enduring parrot attorneys, why we're alive to make sure that if we are incapac incapacitated, our assets aren't stripped prior to death. Yes, so the sleeper, and this is again um, episode two, <laughs> two of series two, is the enduring power of attorney document and and why it's so critical to have it thought through um, with the estate plan. It is part of the estate plan. But what happens if, um, for example, your enduring power of attorney for financial matters is one of your children or your second spouse and you've given them power to change your binding nomination or power over your super fund or total power of the family trust now, so you've done that, 
um, and that is going to possibly mess up your nice estate planning on the death side of things. So you could easily have an enduring power of attorney ill-conceived that scuttles your estate plan and it must be given due consideration as part of the overall estate plan. And, and we can do that, um, but if it's not thought through, it's, um, it's quite easy for a spouse to revoke a reversionary pension or a child who's a financial attorney to revoke a reversionary pension nomination you know, to, um, to a second spouse, for example. And the super funds are allowing powers of attorney to change um, nominations in super or pull your super out. So you've got a binding nomination to someone, you think it's safe, it's all nice and, and you know, trussed up with a bow on it, you've got your witnesses right, it's all been done by a lawyer, and then you've given power of attorney to someone who can pull your super out early, and the binding nomination is meaningless. So it's all got to align, you can't have any faults in that rope. All the strands have got to be twisted the same way and nice and strong. Yes, it's very clear from our podcast series and that um, it is so important to have all these matters considered together by your estate planning lawyer. It doesn't just come down to the two-page document that says, I give everything to my spouse and if they predecease me, then to my children equally. That would be the, a very simple will, but that's not really going to be sufficient if you've got business structures, investments, mm -hmm. uh, superannuation, um, it doesn't consider power of attorney. Um, it would be suitable in blended families. It's just so many different things to consider and why it is so important to have a very competent estate planning lawyer actually prepare your entire estate plan. Yes. Um, well, I'm not going to disagree with that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and just winging it right back to podcast one where... Chris was saying that 52% of Australians don't have a will. I'm far more concerned with the 48% that do because I know that out of that 48%, 90% of those have got a standard two-page document and have been lulled into a sense of complacency that they've now got their affairs sorted. Uh, whereas the people who don't have a will know they have a problem. <laughs> and so what I would say to the people who do have, have a will is maybe um, get it reviewed in light of all the things we've been talking about over this series to make sure you have all your ducks in a row. And the other point is too, once you do have that lined up in the beginning, it's important to continually review it because as we all know, circumstances change. You buy a house, you sell a house, you start a business. Anything can go wrong. Uh, might win the lotto, and that could make a very big difference to how you want your estates, um, your estate assets actually um, split up. So it's not just a set and forget, it's definitely continue to review it. It is, and if it's done really well in the first place, it's going to walk with you in your life in a way that it can handle a lot of buffeting and a lot of change. And it'll only be the really big issues in life, like getting a divorce or getting married or a death in the immediate family that's going to require a change or a tweak to that plan. Um, a good plan will cover a lot of contingencies. But yes, you should review it. I say you should review it every five years or if something major happens. Um, and that's a great philosophy to live by. It's like a garden. I mean, it's not, you know, you've got to maintain it. But if it was a good garden in the first place on a good foundation, 
you know, it's going to leave, you know, it's going to do you, in, you know, it's going to do you favours. Terrific. Well, uh, yeah, thank you very much, Anne, for, for your time across this series. It's been wonderful to hear, I guess, in that first instance about those foundations and the fundamentals and then move on to the, the blended families. And then finally, with this episode, looking at the, the business structures and estate planning um, components in regards to that. So uh, thank you very much for, for your time across, as I say, across the series and really appreciate you um, yeah, obviously coming in to provide that expertise and, and have that sort of open discussion with, uh, with Valder and Ian as well. So uh, I guess just finally, for those who may have missed out across the, um, the other episodes, if individuals are considering their estate planning needs and requirements, uh, how would they uh, get in contact with you? Sure. Um, thank you, Chris, for the opportunity as well. Um, look, um, listeners are welcome to make an appointment to see any of the six estate planning lawyers that we have. We're all experienced and senior in, in what we do. Um, and you can pop on to the website, which is estatefirst.com.au, uh, or you can give us a ring on 1300 Have a chat to us. Um, and if you just even just want what you've got reviewed, we're happy to do that and we'll talk you through um, what that entails. Well, once again, thank you, Barbara and Ian, for your time as well. And uh, as I say, very special thank you to, to you and alongside that. For business owners seeking accounting, taxation, business advisory and superannuation support and assistance, please feel free to get in contact with the advisor team at Archer Gallon Redshaw. Led by Ian Walker, Smiljan Jankovic and Valda Glynn, our firm are a Brisbane CBD-based accounting practice supporting businesses across a variety of industries throughout southeast Queensland and nationally. You can get in contact with our team via the website www.agredshaw.com.au, via email at info at agredshaw.com.au or contacting 073002 2699.